We're grown ass men. We are grown ass men. Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a law professor at Tulane, director of the Tulane Sports Law Program, co-founder of the Tulane Center for Sport, and many other fancy sounding things. And of course, I have many leather-bound books and my house smells of rich mahogany. On this episode, I'm going to discuss the return of the NFL college and high school football and whether we can or should be playing tackle football in the middle of a pandemic and what we can expect if and when the season starts. We'll also tackle the major question that is on everyone's mind. Who has the higher BMI, Derrick Henry or Donald Trump? To help me answer these questions and more, I'm joined by two of the leading experts in the world, Dr. Tom Mayer, Medical Director of the NFL Players Association, and Dr. Zach Binney, Epidemiologist and Professor at Embry. Here we go. And if you educate grown-ass men, they'll make grown-ass decisions. And that was grown-ass man Tom Mayer, Medical Director of the NFLPA. Tom and Zach, thanks for coming on. And my first question to both of you is, can I call you Zach and can I call you Tom or do I have to call you doctor? Please, Zach is fine. I don't know who uh, Dr. Mayer is, but he sounds very old. (laughs) (laughs) I I was actually hoping you'd say, yes, I do have to call you doctor because that would have been really (laughs) awkward, but good. All right. So Tom, Zach, let's jump right in. Here's something that's a pretty obvious statement. I think tackle football is a contact sport. And COVID-19 is largely a close contact illness. Given the risk of aerosol spread, the close proximity of the players on a field, particularly in the trenches, how do you ethically permit the game to be played given the risk of transmission, exposure, and consequences? Well, it's an excellent question. And it goes to the heart of the work that we've been doing literally since February when we stood up our internal COVID-19 task force. So, and, and I can talk more about that if you want. But the, the issue, I, I think, is we have to become, as leaders in a time of crisis, which is no more, no bigger crisis uh, than this pandemic, many of us that were involved in the rescue and recovery operations, whether at the Ground Zero or at the Pentagon, thought that was the defining day of our lives. And, of course, this is a different defining um, year certainly not a day, not a a three-day thing like the Pentagon was. Uh, But at at any rate, I I think the role of of crisis leadership, part of that is is being the chief storyteller, being able to tell the story of what's going on, what's happening in the midst of a novel and emerging coronavirus. Novel meaning we've never seen it before, emerging, of course, meaning things change constantly under our feet. People talk about the new normal, and and I don't think that's the right term. I think it's the now normal, meaning now we know X, Y, and Z, but two days, two um, hours, two weeks from now, everything is different because it is a novel and emerging coronavirus. And so we had to be ready for that. We had to understand that not all the facts were known, that we were in a risk mitigation, not a risk elimination posture, uh, that you can't negotiate with a virus. It's not a reasonable entity, and you can't say, well, you should behave this way instead of the other way. And all by way of saying, from the chief storyteller standpoint, one of the people 
that was one of our key people in our COVID-19 internal task force was uh, our mutual friend, Dan Hanfling, uh, Gabe, who uh, famously said, this is a contact disease and a contact sport. Understanding that a Petri dish doesn't apply to a virus, but if you'll allow me the metaphor, you couldn't find a Petri dish better designed to transmit this virus than the National Football League. This virus has one natural enemy and one only, and that's transmission. If you shut off transmission, you shut off the virus. It's that simple, and it's that complex as well. And what we set out to do was to say, and our again, I'm the medical director for the NFL Players Association. So I'm a union doctor. I've got 2,500 patients, their wives, their kids, their parents. So I'm probably one of the only doctors in the world that has 10,000 patients. So question number one is, do you want to play football? And that is a different viewpoint than the NFL and its medical director represent 32 owners and the clubs that they're responsible for. I represent 2,500 players. And so the desires of the league are really different than the desires of the players. The desires of the league, I think, are manifest and open that they want to play a 256-game schedule on time and without interruption and move on through the playoffs up to a Super Bowl in Tampa in February. Ours are completely different. Ours are to represent the men of the National Football League. So to your ethical question, our players would tell you, and, and they use this term all the time, we're grown-ass men. We are grown-ass men. And if you educate grown-ass men, they'll make grown-ass decisions. They'll make the right decisions. The decisions are not for other people to make. They're, we have to dispel the myths around both how safe it is to play football and what the risks are to playing football. It's the responsibility of the NFL to provide a safe work environment as the employer. It's our responsibility as the NFLPA to question whether that environment is safe enough. It's an excellent question, and one that does the, the simplest thing simply would have been to throw the hands up in the air and say, hey, you can't play football. Are you out of your mind? But we didn't choose the safe path. We chose the path to try to help protect our players to the maximum extent possible, to educate them and their wives. I've had numerous phone calls with the the women's groups that are involved, including moms, who are on the call as well, to help educate them with regard to medical opt-outs, opt-outs even if it's not medical. And if I play, what's the safest way for me to play? I think it's important that these this is uh, a decision that is made by the 2,500 men who play this game, and uh, it's not a decision for fans to make. Well, I agree completely with the fact that it is the decision. It has to be a shared decision, right? But the players are the ones ultimately getting on the field and along with the coaches and staff, <clears throat> assuming the risk. The coaches and staff not on the field, but still in the clubhouses and training facilities and so forth. But when you talk about football as a way to potentially transmit COVID-19, I think you're right. Unfortunately, it's one of the the higher risk sports um, inside or outside of the NFL because you have a lot of people, which means you have a lot of chances for somebody to be sick. And you have a lot of contact, meaning a lot of chances for the virus to transmit if it does get into your team or broader ecosystem. So how do you prevent that? And the focus uh, has to be, and I, I think that Tom would agree, has to be on preventing 
infected people from getting on the field in the first place. And that's where the NFL and the NFLPA have spent, it seems to me from the outside, a majority of their time. There have been a lot of discussions around the new face shields, and maybe those will help some. I I don't know how much, simply because we haven't had a chance to really see them tested in a real-world environment. I I have a lot of respect and and trust for that engineering group that developed them, but we'll have to see both how effective they are and uh, how much they're used. So that could go part of the way to preventing spread on the field, but ultimately it's got to be all about keeping the disease off the field uh, which again is is where the folks involved in this seem to have been spending most of their time, and and rightly so. So, on that note, given the both the contact nature of the sport, the number of people that are playing the sport, the fact that there's going to be grunting and yelling and and all the other stuff that may lead to transmission, wh- what is the more dangerous aspect of restarting the NFL season, at least the way it's contemplated to be restarted now, outside of a bubble? Is it playing, practicing, or is it being in the locker room, traveling together, or just the the risks of going home? If we do see a spike or an outbreak, and obviously comparing it to Major League Baseball, which is not a contact sport, and they've had a spike or a couple of spikes, what is the more dangerous aspect of it from a COVID perspective, the playing or all the other stuff that leads up to the playing? I think that's a really interesting question that we don't necessarily have the answer to. What what we do know about COVID-19 is that it spreads most effectively from sustained close contact. So when you see MLB players, for example, walking over and giving each other high fives, that's gotten a lot of press attention, but I don't really think it is a big issue. In football, as in other sports, you have the problem of locker room time, and any time you're spending indoors is uh, potentially uh, dangerous in terms of COVID-19 transmission. You also have a lot of passing contact in the NFL, by which I don't mean throwing a pass, but like a tackle. That lasts for, what, a few seconds? And the CDC definition is you have to be within six feet uh, for 15 minutes or more to be considered a high-risk contact. But I want to dig into that a little bit. So it's not like if you're at six foot one inches, you're safe. Or, and if you're at five foot 11, you're dead, right? That's not how it is. So the closer you are, the more danger there is. The harder you're breathing, the more respiratory droplets you're expelling, the more dangerous it is. And so a tackle, even if it only lasts a few seconds, is probably worth a lot more than that few seconds makes it sound. And you level that up over the course of a game, and I would see a very real possibility, especially among offensive linemen and between the offensive and defensive lines for COVID-19 to transmit in a game if somebody affected does get on the field. Which one is more dangerous? I don't know. I'd be worried about both of them, and I would say that you need a holistic, integrated strategy to deal with both. We view this as links in a chain, and every link is as important as the other link, but the problem is if one link breaks, then we're in serious trouble. There are people, including folks from the league, who've said there's an over-reliance on testing, which I think is laughable. The issue is not just allowing players who are spreading virus onto the field, it's allowing them into the facility. Therefore, the trailers that are set up outside of the facility, it includes, and we borrowed uh, the, the tier one, tier two, tier three terminology from MLB, from our good friends at the MLBPA, 
And that, that's a very sound way. So the, the point is that if you ask me, um, I'll answer your question directly. And, and there's either zero risk or 100% risk of transmission in every activity that you talked about, Gabe. What do I mean by that? That's not some kind of a, I was a theology major in college. And so you might expect that kind of answer from, from somebody like that. But the point is there is no risk if the players are not shedding virus. They can tackle all day. They can block all day. They can blow in each other's faces. It is not a risk at all if neither of those players has virus and is shedding that virus. And and that's just a fact. I don't know why people don't talk about this more, but that's a fact. Okay. The question is, how do we know whether they're shedding the virus or not? And, And issue number one is testing. And currently, our uh, false negative rates, unfortunately, it's just the nature of the testing right now is about 5%. The safest number to uh, assume is 5%. Hopefully, that gets better. If we had a, a false negative rate of zero, that'd be terrific. We're not there right now. Then the issue of super spreaders, and there's just no question that there are super spreaders that are shedding the virus at 1,000 to 10,000 times the rate of a, a, quote, normal person who's shedding the virus. And you've got a different quantification there than you would have otherwise. With that binary understanding, I don't think there's any question that playing football, being in each other's faces, our center, our president, J.C. Treader, is a center for the Browns, who famously said, we cannot fit the virus into football. We have to fit football into the virus, which is an extremely profound statement, which means We've got to be exhibiting the safest behaviors, whether that's testing, whether that's masks, whether that's physical distancing. I have no idea who came up with social distancing. That's one of the most idiotic terms I've ever heard. It's physical distancing that we're talking about. All the behaviors, making sure that what you do, quote, at home, meaning are you going out to restaurants, are you going out to clubs? And I'm not talking about just the players. I'm talking about the coaches and everybody else and who's in tier one and tier two. Are people going to have the responsibility and understand that protect yourself, protect your family, protect your teammates, and that will protect both the game of football and the community. So I think they're all critically important. You probably know that the Marlins, in all likelihood, had a major transmission event on the airplane or either getting on, getting off, or being on that airplane based on the contact tracing that was done. So it's going to take every link in that chain. Let me um, just jump on a couple things to follow up on what, what Tom said and then, Zach, what you just said. And, and just in terms of social distancing, and no, this is not a laughing matter, but I... Physical I, distancing. No, but social distancing. I'm pretty sure that I was the victim of involuntary social distancing in high school for much of my life. I just wanted to stay away from me socially. But again, I don't want to make light of this issue, but... but is that why you okay. spent four years in a Blue Devil outfit? <laughs> <laughs> That is exactly it. But on the weak link you mentioned on the NFL policy, NFL PA policy, what do you, th- or the, the possibility that the, the, the failure would be because of the weakest link in the chain, what do you think is the weakest le- link in the chain right now that might lead to failure? And then the second part of that question is, how do you define failure or success? And, and, I, and what I mean by that is, what do we expect in terms of positive cases, illnesses, hospitalizations? And then what's the threshold that we have to meet for the season to be paused or canceled? The weakest link in the chain is overconfidence. 
is complacency. People feeling like oh, it's not that big a deal. Uh, there's a series of myths that just simply aren't true. These are young men. They won't get the virus. These are young men. They're in great shape. Uh, if they get the virus, it won't be uh, as bad. These are, are people with BMIs that are extremely high and certainly are at risk, according to the CDC criteria. But, oh, they're athletes, so we don't have to worry about that. And, and I can just tell you, none of those things are true. I can't show you data that says that they are true, but no one has any data. None of the data has been disaggregated in such a way that would tell you that any that our 72% of our athletes are African-American. If you loop in a uh, Hispanic and Pacific Islanders, we're up about 81%. That's clearly a risk factor, period, full stop. Same for BMIs over 28 and BMIs over 30. BMIs over 28 pulls in about 80% of our players in the league. BMI over 30 drops it down to about 62%. No one has looked at percent body fat, athleticism, all that kind of stuff. It hasn't been done. So if someone claims that, it, it, that they're not at risk, as the old saying goes, those who know don't say and those who say don't know. So to me, I think the risk is overconfidence, people getting complacent, people believing that simply because there hasn't been an outbreak in that club, that there won't be an outbreak. All it takes is one. All it takes is that hole that we're looking at. Again, you, you look at three factors, one, a false negative rate that we've currently got. Hopefully the test will improve, but so far that's the number that we're looking at. Concept of super spreaders. And then the third piece, which is becoming increasingly evident, and data will be out this week, to show that, in fact, the virus is mutating, that people can get a genetically distinct form of SARS-CoV-2 traced, by, looked at genetic sequencing, not just a second time, but a third time. And that, in fact, the symptoms are dramatically worse in the second and third exposure. As I said, that'll be out this week. But you take those, and, and the biggest issue is overconfidence and thinking that this is not a novel and emerging virus, that we have all the facts we need to do everything that needs to be done to describe what you call what's a successful season. Sex, successful season for me is no one getting, I'm not naive enough to think that no one's not going to contract the virus, but my hope is that none of the most, none of our players or the coaches or anybody who's involved with the club contract the more serious mnemonic ICU type form. And the nightmare, of course, is, you know, this has cardiovascular effects without question that we can't yet quantify precisely. This is a thrombotic, highly thrombotic disease, and that may have implications, particularly for people, large people, getting on planes and flying back and forth, particularly after their games. Uh, what's Wait, sorry, the explain that. Explain that for one second. What do you mean by a thrombotic? Thrombotic effect means your blood clots in ways uh, that that are abnormal. We've had a number of people nationally and internationally who, at, at 32, 33, 26, have had massive strokes. And, and no underlying factor would predispose them to stroke except the fact that they had active coronavirus disease, SARS-CoV-2. You put people on an airplane and the risk for uh, having uh, deep vein thrombosis or even PE goes up dramatically. So our, my concern is not so much do we play a 256-game season uninterrupted and week to week. We'll probably get into scheduling before we're done, I, I assume but that we end up with people either with the more severe form of the disease or with long-term consequences that we thought about but could not accurately predict 
ahead of time. Yeah. So I'll just jump in here on a few points. So number one, race as a risk factor. You may be able to tell from my voice I'm a white guy. So really, what do I have to say about this? But I'm, I'm going to do my best. The public health perspective on race as a risk factor is that it's not anything about being black per se that puts you at higher risk for uh, COVID-19. It's all of the social factors and the systemic racism around that. So it's higher rates of comorbidities like diabetes uh, and hypertension, high blood pressure. It's less access to health care. It's being disproportionately having essential jobs that put you in contact with people even in the middle of a pandemic. All of these lead to what we're seeing among Black people and other people of color, why they are suffering disproportionately from COVID-19. So you could argue that maybe that's not as big an issue in the NFL, where the majority of the Black players are of higher socioeconomic status and have better access to healthcare and all of this. But it is still a concern, certainly. BMI, Tom alluded to it, the fact that we haven't done any analyses by body fat or anything like this. My favorite stat, not getting political here, I'm just saying, my favorite stat to give my classes is that uh, Donald Trump and Derek Henry have the same BMI. That is true. So it doesn't do a great job necessarily of measuring elite athletes, but I would still be very concerned for especially folks on the offensive and defensive line, because once you get up to those sizes, once you're that big, there, there could be something to worry about. To go back and answer Gabe's actual questions, in terms of the weakest link I see, I, I just worry about behavior away from the training facilities and stadiums. And I worry specifically about families. And I'm not even saying that anybody's going to engage in any bad behavior, but the weakest link can almost be better thought of as the amount of virus in the community. Because let's say your kid is going to daycare or going to school if you're in an area that's actually trying to have in-person school. Not, not risky, right? Not, not like going out to a bar or nightclub. You're not doing anything irresponsible. But that kid picks something up from his daycare uh, teacher or another kid at school, brings it back, player gets sick, you get one of those false negatives, or you just test on the wrong day. Uh, if you're testing every other day once we get into the season, that leaves that disease a couple of days potentially to spread around the locker room. I'm, I'm not saying it will happen. I'm just saying it it can, and I'm, I'm really worried about that uh, in terms of being able to do anything about that at all. In terms of what's a successful season, this is something I've thought about quite a lot, actually, and I think it's a really fascinating question. So I completely agree when people say one case isn't enough to shut a league down, right? And the reason is because epidemiologists love to think in something we call counterfactuals. So what would the world have looked like had the NFL not tried to return? Well, some of their players and staff still would have gotten infected, right? And we just got some numbers released this morning, actually, that show that about at initial intake testing, about 2.2% of NFL players tested positive. So you could assume that, say, every two weeks or so, if you didn't come back, about 2.2% of your players would end up testing positive. So as long as you keep those numbers below that, aren't you creating a safer environment? Aren't you not putting these players at higher risk? I think you could make that argument. But of course, the other thing you need to be on the lookout for is outbreaks. And we saw this with the Marlins, right? Once you had three or four cases, you knew it wasn't going to stop there. So you can't just keep going until you breach that 2.2% threshold or whatever. You've always got to be on the lookout 
for outbreaks and you've got to be willing to take steps to shut that down. And unfortunately in football, I think the only way to do that may be to essentially shut down the team facility temporarily and, and keep everyone separate. Because like Tom said, the only natural enemy of this virus is its inability to transmit. Uh, on the note of the idea of risky behavior, whether it's by the, the players themselves or their family members, given that they're not in a bubble, that there may not be a difference, whether it's your wife or you're the one engaged in the behavior, if you're going to go back to your wife at the end of practice or the game. And the and and Tom, I'll start with you, but then Zach, I want to hear your opinion on this too. Is and I, and I understand that the the protocols that the league and the players association agreed on were part of a negotiation right? that, that both sides presumably compromised on it a bit. And this may not have been what you Tom as medical director would have chosen if you got to unilaterally announce a proposal or, or protocols. But in terms of the player discipline schedule uh, and the fines and suspensions to try to deter players from engaging in high risk COVID-19 conduct, which includes, among a bunch of other things, in attending an indoor nightclub or bar, unless a player is wearing PPE and there are no more than 10 people in the club, attending an indoor concert, but attending church or other religious services is not included. And I, my question is, and this is not meant to be a, a statement about religion, particularly to a theology expert, but is there something less risky about attending an indoor religious service with more than 10 people than attending an indoor music event? Or is this just one of the many examples that we're going to have to face where we have to balance livability with COVID? And, and we're not going to stop doing everything. We just have to recognize there's some risks and we're going to value doing some things over others. Well, it's an excellent question. And I'll just retreat back to what I said before, which is that there's one natural enemy and one only, and that's transmission. Shut off transmission, you shut off the virus. You referred earlier to bubbles. The uh, NFL was pretty strongly, vehemently, might not be the bad word, uh, against that concept. And now we see that, in fact, they can work. And how do they work? They work by de decreasing the likelihood, the possibility of transmission, if combined with testing and assuring that there's uh, responsible social behaviors, not just among players, but anybody who is coming in contact with the players, uh, the coaches, all the tier one and tier two people that are involved. So as you look at sort of ripples in a pond and the, the ripples are, whether it's school for the kids, whether it's exposure at church, whether it's Caesar's Palace can be open and that's a perfectly acceptable behavior in, in a community because of economic issues. And someone would probably say there's psychological. And you extend that. And I think that there are indeed uh, non-infectious consequences of living through a pandemic that I wouldn't say haven't been considered, but perhaps haven't been considered as widely as they should. And I, I think as you look along the way, the insistence of the league to have penalties in there for for those issues should apply as much to employees as it should to players themselves or their families. There's every kind of article. One of the, the odd things that's happened in this pandemic is there's this, my data can beat up your data, or I just read an article three seconds ago that you didn't even know about. And it's a very unhealthy way to try to say, what's, how can we do the right thing? How can we do the right thing for the people we're responsible for, whether that's a community, in our case, a community of athletes and the support people who are involved with them. 
So the more we're able to decrease that risk of transmission, the better. I don't think that takes fines. That's just dealing with the National Football League when it comes to issues like that. But you're no more likely to spread the virus in church than you are any place where people are singing, for example, or cheering. Probably the highest risk would be at an NFL stadium, depending upon how many people were there and how much cheering goes on. You want to hear a disturbing figure. A study was done a number of years ago. Zach probably is familiar with it that 62% of of people who attended an NFL football game were convinced that their cheering materially affected the outcome of the game. And if that doesn't trouble you from a psychological standpoint, probably nothing will. But I I do think we have to think about the psychological costs. And and we have our, our team clinicians, team psychologists geared up to deal both with the players and families who get it, but also for the ones who live in fear of It's a very broad issue, both for the community of football, the community of NFL football, but the community writ large as well. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that's been, I think, really frustrating for a lot of public health folks is that we have created this environment where there is a dichotomy between public health and the economy, which almost any public health person you talk to will say that's nonsense. Of course, people's financial well-being and financial health has material impacts on their health. I don't know a single one of us who would say that's not important. But unfortunately, we have a political atmosphere where that has been made to be the case to the consternation and frustration of all of us in public health. You do need to strike a balance and you need a holistic approach to health, thinking about Uh, the economic consequences and the psychological consequences of everything that you're asking people to do. That's why lockdowns, for example, were never meant to be a long-term solution. They were meant to drive uh, the number of viral cases down. And then you have a robust testing, tracing, and isolation program to bridge us to a vaccine, right? That was always the plan. Unfortunately, it it did not work out that way here in the U.S. It's working out better uh, than that in many other countries. All that is to say, I agree. And on the church front, that's one of the hardest things to ask people not to do, right? And it's easy for me, a guy who admittedly does not go to church, right? That's easy for me. And it's not the same, but I'm not going to go to the bar and watch football games this fall. I'm going to watch them from home, even though I'm going to miss the heck out of the fan club. And that's kind of like, almost like church, uh, if you ask my wife for me and my dad on Sundays. So it hurts. But what I would encourage people to do is, Find the things that you cannot live without, but really, really limit those. And if you can, maybe go to church every other week or every month or something like that rather than every week. But everybody has what I like to call a contact budget, what a lot of people like to call a contact budget, where if you spend some contact somewhere like church, hopefully you're going to make a decision to reduce your number of contacts somewhere else. So it's a chance for us all to take stock in our lives of what's really most important and really, really limit uh, medium and high-risk activities to those that are most important. And if for you that's church, I again, I would encourage you to do everything you can to make that less less risky, find outdoor services, wear a mask, go less often. But if you have to, at some point, it is what it is. So Zach, I, I just hope you have thought through the consequences it will have on your team if you are not at the bar cheering. I'm going to be at home twice as loud, so I'm 62% sure that's still going to have an effect. (laughs) 
Okay. A couple of questions specifically about the NFL PA protocol. And Tom, you mentioned we get into scheduling. So quick scheduling question here. Given the two to 12-ish day incubation period, doesn't it or wouldn't it make more sense to have teams play every other week? Well, it's an excellent question. And I'll start by in February, my boss, Demora Smith, who I, you know extremely well, Gabe, and, and I know how much respect you have for him, but he's the best boss in the world. And the reason I say that is not in hopes that he's listening to this podcast, although I hope he does. I hope he does too. Uh, yes, exactly. But but because we have clear mission, visions, and values, and that is health and safety are non-negotiable. D always says we'll go wherever the science takes us and nowhere it doesn't. And third, whole player, whole life, whole family. And so people say, well, boy, it must take a lot of courage to stand up to the NFL, the most powerful sports entity in the world and, and arguably one of the most powerful entities in the world. And the answer is it doesn't take any courage at all because D gives me the latitude to say, as long as you follow those principles, I'm with you hundred percent. And we stood up, as I said, in February, uh, a group of scientists, serious, badass scientists who had been there before, meaning they had been through crisis. They had been through leading through crises. Dan Hanfling, our mutual friend who worked with me at the Pentagon on 9-11, and so that group of people looked at, at questions precisely like the questions you're looking at. And in addition to the two to 14 day period, the fact that in the 24 hours prior to develop symptoms, the time of maximum viral transmission for the majority of people who contract the virus, and that extends for 24 to 48 hours after the onset of symptoms. So we, we ask those questions and more, meaning and Dan, I'll tell you, was the author of the idea of why don't you just go to every other week games for the clubs, but alternate, you could do it American Conference, National Conference, any way you want, so that there would be football every weekend, but that every club would only play every other weekend. Why couldn't the season be extended? What's magic about the Super Bowl in Tampa in February? You could play the Super Bowl in Tampa in April and have this, the same 256-game season. Why is the 256-game season sacrosanct? Could there not be opportunities, again, not trying to fit the virus into football, but to try to fit football into the virus, to J.C. Treader's point? So uh, a, a lot of extremely creative questions have been asked, and we challenged the NFL to provide a safe workplace and to do whatever is necessary to be done. So – Keep the ideas coming, and, and uh, I think that's one that has been thought of and has been pressed forward. We don't have an answer to it yet. I don't know how much playing every other week would really help unless everybody is quarantining for five or seven days in between. Like, are players still going to the facility? Then you can still have intra-team spread. That doesn't do anything to stop intra-team spread, which, if anything, I'm I'm more concerned about than inter-team spread. So, uh, you know, if you're if you're getting together for even a few days before a game, it doesn't really matter what the game is or what the spacing is between the games all that much. You could still have somebody infected get on the field and and transition it. So, uh, or transmit it. So, I just I just don't see that being that helpful. Couple other questions on the NFL specifically, and then I'll transition quickly to just some college and high school issues. The there's some debate or confusion, as I know is the case with almost every issue here. But 
when players can return to play after a positive test. And I want to generalize the question because it's an issue that I think everybody is concerned about when they can return to work, when kids can return to school following a positive test. And yeah. there's been some suggestion that either you have to test negative, you have to test negative twice in a row, you have to wait a particular period of time, you have to be improving, you have to be asymptomatic, some combination of all of those. What, what is the safest, realistic answer, obviously based on the science at this point? So the current CDC guidance, if we're going by that and the science, which I think is a, a good way to go, it's that if you test positive, you want to isolate for 10 days if you're asymptomatic or 24 hours after your symptoms resolve, if you're symptomatic, whichever is longer. The NFL is talking about returning a little bit faster than that, though not that much faster. There are two very legitimate strategies. One is test-based and the other is symptom or time-based, where you just basically wait it out. For most people, symptom and time-based is going to be the way to go because you can't get regular follow-up tests in this country right now, right? The NFL is an exception. So you could, in theory, pursue a test-based strategy. But the problem with that is that we know that there are some people who will keep testing positive, even though they are not actually infectious or capable of transmitting the virus. So you don't want to punish those people uh, by keeping them out longer when you can be reasonably sure that if you just wait 10 days or 24 hours after symptoms resolve, that they're not infectious any longer. Yeah, we've broadly followed the CDC guidelines in terms of, and, and when we talk about novel and emerging, those uh, are clearly iterative guidelines. It was 10 plus three, now it's 10 plus one, meaning uh, 10 plus uh, three days without fever, without using any Tylenol, Advil, all that kind of stuff, fever modifying uh, things. So now we're back at 10 plus one. Is that going to change during the course of the season? Yeah, probably. The test-based strategy is, I wouldn't say it's a luxury for us. We've been very clear that we don't want to exceed the supply lines of the community or the region when it comes to testing. And there conceivably could be a time when our currently daily testing, even if we go to every other day testing, and I might just say it's not just the frequency of testing and the accuracy of those tests, it's the rapidity with which you get those results that's critical to, to decreasing viral transmission. And it goes a little bit towards the every other uh, week. But uh, the test-based strategy for us is if someone tests positive and uh, then has two consecutive, got to be consecutive, uh, negative PCR tests greater than or equal to 24 hours apart, then they could return. Now, personally, based on the experience we've seen, I don't think that's going to happen very often. As Zach said, a number of these people continue to have virons, they don't necessarily, they're not transmitting the virus, they're not uh, infectious, but they can continue to have virons in their upper respiratory passage. I, I think the, the vast majority of people will be returned by a symptom-based strategy, just because I don't think the test-based strategy is very likely to go negative that fast in a large group of people. And so just quickly on the every other week, the issue is more with, here's a fundamental question. What's the rate of transmission? Essentially, what's the R naught, the R sub zero of this virus in this league? And the answer is, we don't know. We don't know. It's unknowable until we get into uh, football activity, including not just being in the facility and having training camps, but playing the games themselves. We don't know. 
but we're going to find out. The only thing that would drive you to every other week games is the facts, the facts that it's transmitting faster than we thought, that nose tackle might be a super spreader, all those issues that we're looking at. But we're going to adapt. We're, we're currently at anterior nasal, but we have a written commitment to go to saliva-based testing. But I think saliva-based testing uh, will be a game changer as well. I agree on the saliva-based testing. Even if the R naught is found to be bigger in NFL football. The only Wait, thing. On, Matt, can you just explain what R naught just for it, most of the people who don't understand what that might be? Absolutely. So, well, R naught or R more generally or R sub T for time is the average number of people that one case of COVID 19 transmits the disease to, transmits the virus to. So, even if we found that number was higher, I'm still not sure how two weeks would work except making it easier to schedule like in the case of if you do detect an outbreak okay now you've got time to get that resolved before your next game i could see it being helpful there but an outbreak could start immediately after one game or it could start even if you have two weeks apart an outbreak could start two or three or four or five days before that second game as long as you're together there could always be transmission I, I don't see the huge benefit in terms of protecting folks from going uh, going to every other week unless you want to say, hey, if there is an outbreak, that gives us more time to get it resolved, which I think would be a, a fair argument in its favor. Let me come back in a minute to frequency of testing because I want to raise that in, in the context of college sports and how the different athletic departments are handling that. Let me give you a couple of just quick hitter questions staying on the NFL to get, uh, get quick reactions from you guys. One is you may have seen that the Denver Broncos are using a disinfecting spray that they claim helps protect the players from COVID by killing microbes and pathogens instantly by forming millions of nanocrystalline structures. Players walk through the non-toxic spray as they walk out to the practice field for a walkthrough or practice. And my question is, can this possibly help and on the scale of one to injecting yourself with bleach, where is it in terms of effectiveness in reducing the risk of spread? No, is the very short answer. It's hokum. Even let, let's say it works perfectly. Let's say it perfectly removes every uh, microbe on the surface of these players as they walk under that light mist very briefly it's not getting into your lungs. You're not inhaling it and coating the inside of your lungs with these nanocrystals, or at least I sure hope you aren't. Uh, So you're still going to be breathing out respiratory droplets and virus. What we know so far is that person to object to person transmission or surface to person transmission does not seem to be nearly as big a deal as direct respiratory droplet Uh, spread or aerosol spread in the air in an enclosed space. So that's really what you need to focus on. So I think this is well meant. And as long as it doesn't make you engage in otherwise risky behavior, it's probably not doing any damage. But it strikes me as very much hygiene theater. Look at what a safe environment we're creating while looking for this magical solution when there is no magical solution. This is a respiratory virus that spreads through respiratory droplets. The closest to magic we have is a mask but you probably can't play football with a full-on mask. And even then, they're not 100% effective. No, I I don't think that does much. And I I hope that we don't see other teams adopt that technology. 
Yeah, I go back, retreat to the chief storytelling and, and the importance of understanding literature, biography, history, all that. And it's Shakespeare. Diseases desperate grown by desperate appliance will be healed or not at all. And so it's not surprising to me that people are trying to do everything they can for all of the right personal, ethical, responsible reasons that may not have enough science behind it. On the other hand, there are there's some science behind UV light that, that seemed a little crazy at first, but actually has some validity to it. And the dolphins are using that in their locker room. So I don't think that's the, the last of the unusual solutions that are proposed. I, my concern is anything which gives people a false sense of security is desperately wrong. And, and I'm not saying the, the Broncos are doing that. It's a very responsible medical staff at that club. But any, it's just like thinking, okay, my, I got antibodies. I got a COVID pass. Wrong. Not true. Not supported by science. And not a socially responsible way to look at it. So I don't think that's the last of the desperate solutions that we see. For the record, I don't hate the UV light to clean the locker room idea at all. That does have some scientific basis. The nanocrystal TSA sprayer, not a huge fan. And I, I guess the, the, the key point here is as long as they are not harmful, like, for example, injecting yourself with bleach, that it's understandable that people are desperate for some type of solution. And that is okay. It has to be made clear that you can both try to experiment on potential solutions that might seem crazy, but at the same time emphasize that this is not actually giving, we don't know it's giving you protection. So keep wearing the mask, keeping physically distanced and, and all of that. That's exactly right. And since you raised it, first do no harm, the, the Hippocratic concept, people forget. I mean, that in, in the Latin, that's primum non nocere. But the next line was diende benefacere, which means then do something good. And so that first do no harm gets quoted. It can lead to a nihilism, a therapeutic nihilism, that I think is harmful or can be harmful. And, and the answer is, as physicians, we need to do something good. We need to step forward and say, hey, you, you cannot rely on these semi-crazy uh, concepts and say, well, I don't have to wear a mask or I don't have to physical distance or all the issues that go with that. So arcane point that you didn't want to hear. No, no. Well, here's the thing, though. I was about to say the second line, but then you cut me off. Ah. <laughs> okay, so well played. So let me let's jump quickly to college sports. My question is: Have schools put, put aside whether they're going to have a football season or not? Have they already exposed college football players to unreasonable risks by bringing them back to campus? for practice, particularly when most in-person classes were canceled by those same schools this summer? Yes, they had a responsibility to create a safe environment, and they didn't. We've seen example after example where you had large outbreaks. I mean, Clemson had 37 cases at one point and did not even stop practices. Like At that point, they may as well have been a meatpacking plant or a prison. It, 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 it boggled my mind and made me quite angry to see that level of irresponsibility. And you can say, look, we didn't really know what would be required. We weren't getting guidance from the NCAA. We weren't getting this. We weren't getting that. But public health officials were saying, and, and we had pretty ample evidence that if you bring a group of people together 
and you don't test them regularly, even if they're asymptomatic, if you don't surveil them, then you run the risk of having a very large outbreak. And we saw that happen over and over again. And you see this pattern repeated even at schools that seem to be doing well at the start. You saw it at Michigan State. You saw it at Indiana. You saw it at Rutgers, right? They seem to not have any positives for a month or so. Eventually, you get a cluster of cases, uh, symptomatic cases maybe, who are tested. You say, oh, no, you shut it down. Go back, you test everyone. You find out some insane 20, 30, 40, 50% of your players were infected right? This is what happens. This is what happens over and over again. So because you were bringing players back, bringing students back, not to take classes, but just to prepare to play a game for you, I think you had a much higher ethical duty than many of these schools showed. And maybe they were trying their best, but the fact is they did create a higher risk environment. And and it's lucky that nobody seems to have suffered particularly severe outcomes, though we have at least that one lineman at Indiana whose breathing problems got so bad he had to go to the emergency department. But yeah, I I think college is so difficult because of the college aspect, right? You can't create a bubble. You can't ask these kids to really physically distance in the classroom. You have to expect some of them, no matter how good their discipline is, are going to go to parties or something like that. And I think you're going to see a lot of outbreaks on college campuses. And I don't think Athletics programs are going to be insulated from that, unfortunately. Yeah, I, don't get me started. I represent the NFL athletes and their families. I'm perfectly happy with my 10,000 patients. The NFL essentially uses the NC2A as a farm club. I mean, it is a farm club for the NFL. So with that context in mind, and to build on what Zach said, how can an organization, the NC2A, look itself in the mirror and use a cravenly brilliant term, student-athlete, and say, yes, we are looking out for the student-athlete, but we will send them back without any semblance of testing, any semblance of understanding. The NC2A's task force had precisely one team physician on it who happened not to be a a football doc, which is fine, but – when you're trying to figure out how do you play football, essentially, and as you know, there are coaches who said that it would, it's, an essential, it's an essential service. It's an essential business. And they didn't use the term business. It's essential to American life. And, you know, we had Maureen and I, my beautiful and brilliant wife and I raised three boys. And whenever they were doing something that they shouldn't be doing when they were kids, we'd say, what's that smell? I think it's your soul burning in hell. Well, I think it's their souls burning in hell, putting these kids back. And, and unfortunately, it does not surprise me. When you can kill a Maryland football player by its medical and training staff, and the NC2A does not even launch an investigation, are you kidding me? So my answer is, I'm, not, I'm surprised anybody's surprised that they throw these people back. And then, of course, Gabe is dookies. we got to be real careful about that outbreak at Carolina and that I heard that actually 37 players tested positive because one tutor turned in a test and then the same test appeared for the other 37. Let me offer not to further equate the NCAA with the devil, but the devil's advocate argument here. And just on a couple of points, one, there's the argument that for a number of these college football players that they are safer 
on campus within the supervision of their athletic staff and the testing they're receiving. And that's not to suggest that some of the athletic departments or, or, or coaching staffs aren't handling it very well, and that's why we're seeing outbreaks. But there are certainly, if you can look at certain schools, and I'll just hold Tulane out as one, uh, as far as I know, we have not had a positive test since the football players have been brought back to campus. Yet. And the general idea that for a lot of these athletes, that they were exposed to greater risk when they were home than they are when they're back on campus, at least in the summer. It may change when the rest of the students come back to campus. But this was a closer facsimile to a bubble than they would have if they were still home. And, and I'm, again, I'm not making the argument. I'm just playing devil's advocate. And based on, I can see Zach's face, I can't see Tom's. Uh, Zach is not persuaded by that ar- argument. I, I, I'm not. No. I mean, it's a convenient argument to make, right? But we've seen outbreak after outbreak after outbreak, and we haven't been doing enough testing to really know how bad it is. I actually worked with HBO Real Sports to try to estimate whether college football players in particular were being put at higher risk. And we estimated that about 2% over the month of June of uh, 18 to 22 year olds in the US probably became infected with COVID-19. That's a very rough number, but we guessed about 2%. And then we tried to look over as many schools as were actually releasing data, which some weren't. So we don't even know really if they're having problems or not. Maybe they're fine, maybe they're not. Uh, But we found that it was more like five or 6% of their players had gotten infected. So I, I don't think you can make that argument and you certainly can't make it in situations when you have an outbreak. So no, right. no, I absolutely don't think you can look across the landscape. And the reason I challenged you on, on Tulane a little bit is because like Michigan State was also doing some regular follow-up testing, but they still ended up having an outbreak. So I'm just saying you can't assume that the past predicts the future. I would say about that, the same thing that most of my professors in college said to me when they read my papers, which was nice try, <laughs> nice try. Uh, but I, I would suggest that these, that is the same kind of mentality that informed the Tuskegee experiment, that it's okay to experiment with these people's lives. And it's not okay to experiment with people's lives. It's fundamentally saying that, you know, we'll take care of them. Ask Jordan McNair's parents if it was okay to trust the University of Maryland, whose son is dead. They will never see him again. And I'm not equating that, but I am saying that there is the, the incidence of ICU pulmonic forms is low, but it's not zero. And the chances, if you take that number of players and look at it, just take D1, just take the power five, take whatever number you want and start saying a hundred man roster. I mean, there, there is a statistically likelihood that a NF, uh, NC2A player would die of SARS-CoV-2 just based on the numbers and the severity and uh, thread in Aaron Bagish's work. And, and they believe people who were involved with this, John is a uh, team physician for the, for the Seahawks, that the likelihood of an athlete contracting it is actually higher because higher vital capacity, breaths per minute, expirations, higher cardiac output. 
So there's some reasons to think that they're more at risk by nature of the activity. So I'm a solid no, and maybe even not more solid no than, than Zach, but more perhaps distrusting of that logic and the implications that it, that it entails. Right. Hey, it's, not, it's not a contest. We can both be no. I'm perfectly okay with a tie. Yeah, that actually brings up, this is a little bit of a side point, but it was brought up earlier. It's not just about death that we're worried about, right? It's especially with elite athletes, we're worried about even relatively minor uh, long-term changes to cardiovascular heart or lung function, right? I mean, if I lose 5% of my lung function, like if I get COVID-19 and I lose 5% of my lung function, whatever, the most strenuous thing I do uh, is I stand up and I lecture to my students for an hour. Well, I can still probably manage that without noticing too much. An NFL player or an elite college football player loses 5% of their lung capacity, they're going to feel it. So on that note, and this is one of those things where it's, a, it's become a talking point for a lot of people, and I would love for the two of you to as concisely and definitively and angrily, if you want, respond and dispel the sentiment behind this statement that the vast, vast majority of athletes will be asymptomatic or mildly ill at worst. If you're under 24 years old, you're more likely to be struck by lightning or die of the flu than die of the coronavirus. Give me your most succinct uh, retort to that. Go hold up a golf club in a thunderstorm then. I mean, really? Really? Okay, that's the stat you want to pull out? Go put yourself in a risky situation. But I would not actually advise anybody to do that uh, for legal purposes. I feel like I should make that clear. <laughs> None of this is medical advice. I am not a medical doctor. Do not do this. I'll um, add a disclaimer at the beginning of the podcast. Don't worry. Oh, good. So what I would say also is that players, it doesn't just stay within players and athletes, Right they can transmit the virus to anybody else that they're around. That could be coaches who are not young elite athletes. That could be their family members or the broader community. You need to think bigger than just let the athletes get sick, they'll be fine. Because A, there's no guarantee that all of them will be, certainly with how little we know about the long-term effects uh, of the virus, and B, that they can contribute to other people getting sick. Please don't come to me and argue that we should be creating more cases in the middle of a global pandemic. Yeah, I would just say I would not dignify that sentiment with a response other than this. And that is, as a theology major, I learned that all language has meaning and all behavior has meaning. It doesn't always have the same meaning that uh, the person saying it or doing it intends, but it has, it has meaning. And the meaning behind that sentiment that you, that I know you, you weren't speaking for yourself, Gabe, but, but the meaning behind that sentiment is it, they don't finish the sentence. They don't finish the sentence by saying, it'll be fine. Get back out on the fields. Y'all get back out there, boys. Everything will be fine. And here's what they didn't say. For my entertainment, for my enjoyment. And I think that's, what's that smell? And to be clear, not only was that not my sentiment, the reason I raised it, and, and I agree with you generally, I wouldn't want to dignify it with a response or even broadcast it out to more people, is because there are a sadly large number of people who believe it. And I don't want it to go unrebutted because we think it's so obviously wrong. 
And uh, that's why I'm, I'm asking, I just wanted you guys, and you did it, to, to just explain why it's so wrong. Because well, it, me, it, it, it hurts me to read something like that on Twitter and see 30,000 people like it and retweet it. Let me also say this. It is easy to be angry. And I'm, I mean, I was guilty of this a couple minutes ago. I'm guilty of this regularly, but it is you possible. Angry at me? No, 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 no. Angry at the argument. <laughs> it is, and it's okay to be angry at the argument, but then there's getting angry at people and... It is possible, I think, to come at that argument from a good faith angle, from a, I have been told that there is no, essentially no risk, right, if a young elite athlete gets it. That's possible to come up from a good faith place. So it is incumbent on people like me and Tom to explain why that's mistaken. Now, if after... 45 seconds of doing that, you're still making that argument, then I think it's probably coming from a bad faith place, right? It should be a relatively quick and easy thing, but we should tamp down on our anger and make an initial attempt to communicate if it's coming from a good faith place. There are also people who are saying it coming from a bad faith place, right? And those are uh, the things that, that we don't want to let stand. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, and I try to convey to my students that even if you think the other person is 100% wrong, and even if they're objectively wrong, calling them an idiot or saying they're stupid or that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard is not going to get them to say, oh, you know what? You're right. I am an idiot. I don't know why I didn't think of that before. So I'm going to change my mind. And that it's just going to polarize people even further. And so yeah. I, I, I like the idea of trying to disagree more agreeably and to have conversations about this that could potentially change people's minds. Noting though, as you said, that some people are approaching this from bad faith start and you're not going to change their mind. That's right. That's right. The key is differentiating the two. It's not always easy, but to make an initial effort at first. And if that clearly isn't working, then, then I would say give up the ghost. Right, right. Okay. Well, as Benjamin Franklin said, I treat him as a gentleman, not because he is, but because I am. Right. Yeah. Look at how many quotes Tom is full well, of. He's putting and, me to shame. And just Shakespeare, to, Benjamin yeah. Franklin. Jeez. In fairness, I was about to use that Ben Franklin quote, but once again, Tom cut me off. <laughs> Uh, two more quick questions or one point and then a, and then a question to wrap things up again, playing devil's advocate for the NCAA and, and their perspective on this. And they announced this again yesterday is that they are not only deferring to the individual conferences and we've seen now conference activity and announcements in terms of what the football season will look like, but also to the individual institutions and we're also seeing that at the high school level, that the National Federation of High Schools is deferring to individual state athletic associations to make decisions. And my, my question is, is that a reasonable approach? And let's confine it to the NCAA for right now. Is that a reasonable approach to defer to schools based on the differences, not only in resources, but infection rates within that particular location? Or is it a cop-out or something in between? Well, I think succinctly, organizations exist for the benefit of the, the uh, people and the institutions which they comprise. And, and I think that organizations, whether it's the NC2A, state high schools, whatever, if you want to defer to the local circumstances, then give them a framework, give them guidelines, inform them about testing. But don't just, you know, say, Pontius Pilate, wash my hands, up to you guys. 
Uh, so I would have liked to have seen a little more guidance. You know, if you say, uh, you know, can I play high school football in Jackson, Wyoming? That's a different calculus than can I play high school football in Miami-Dade, Florida or Houston? So I would like to see more guidance and more more uh, sense of how you would make that decision, not just say, hey, I wash my hands. Yeah, I don't have anything to add. That was beautifully put. Okay, then last two quick points. One, we saw the Raiders announce they're not going to have fans at home games this season, and the estimate is they will lose uh, – it'll cost them $571 million in revenue. And University of Texas, at least last they announced, is – that they're going to limit capacity to 25% in their stadium, which I, I think would be about 25,000 people. Uh, if Texas sticks with the plan, and, and I get it, a lot is changing, and day by day, minute by minute, things are changing. If they stick with the plan, though, is it at all defensible, and can teams safely host a significant number of fans in an outdoor stadium, in an indoor arena, Given that I, I see that some of the protocols say if you're going to have people in a stadium, they have to wear a mask except for when they're eating and drinking, which I just don't quite get because if you've been to a football game, people spend a lot of time eating and drinking. So their mask may be off half of the time and then there's getting in and out of the stadium. So back to the original question, is it defensible at all to allow 25,000 people to be in a college football stadium this fall? No. And let me provide you a framework to think about this. Every step that we take back towards normality has a risk and a benefit associated with it. And often this is perverted by people who will say, well, everything in life has risk, as if that's somehow an excuse to not uh, regulate things that are super high risk, right? So we never shut down grocery stores because there was a risk with going to the grocery store, but that was outweighed by the benefit of being able to get food, right? That was good. Bringing sports back without fans, I think, at least at the professional level, I think there's some real arguments to be made in its favor, if it can be done safely. Psychological benefits, emotional benefits, giving people something to do safely at home, helping people see the light at the end of the tunnel, some economic benefits, not just for the teams and their employees, but for the whole ecosystem around them, media and so on and so forth. I mean, there are some real arguments there. And so... If you can construct the return in a way that is safe for players and staff, and then there's a real chance for the benefits to outweigh the risks. When you start talking about fans, you're really just talking about money in the pockets of owners and stadium authorities. And in exchange, you are creating a tremendous risk, not just to the people who show up, but the risk for a super spreading event that could hammer the entire community. So you're putting a whole lot of people's lives and livelihoods at risk so you can host a completely optional event. I am not for it in any way, shape, or form, and I think the correct move is to not have any fans, not try to find the safe number, not run experiments on your fan base right now, but to say there's too much virus, we got to keep it at zero until we either get this thing further under control or uh, we get a widely administered vaccine, which is going to be several months after whenever a vaccine is ready. I have pretty strong feelings on that point. I'm not in favor of fans, indoor, outdoor. We know outdoor is safer, but you want to try gathering 10, 20,000 people right now for a completely optional thing? I really don't. You want to try to enforce a mask mandate in an NFL game or a NASCAR race? I don't. 
I think that's going to be really difficult, especially because you select for people who have a higher risk tolerance, who are going to be going to these games. And you've got the issue of bathroom lines, concessions. I'm in indoor concourses, even if you're in a stadium with a retractable roof, ingress, egress. I mean, you've got a lot of times when you can have a lot of people together. And to me, it just doesn't make sense to be doing that right now. I'm sorry to say there are a few things that we should not do. This is one of them. I'll restrict my comments to uh, NFL football because that's what I do. But uh, it actually will have an economic impact on the players. But that will happen when we do the salary cap true up next year. So let's say it's a $4 billion hit to revenue, uh, 48%, 47% of which goes to the player. The salary cap would be lowered by that amount next year. And obviously, there's negotiations about how far to spread that out. And what's the impact on being able to to cut players, cut veteran players and say, we're going to go with a cheaper option next year because the salary cap has been lowered by 20, 40 million per club. But that's not a reason to do it. I mean, from a scientific standpoint, the risk of playing professional football this year in the midst of this pandemic is X. What's X? Well, we're going to find out what X is with all these protocols that we have and all the testing. And then you layer onto that what what's the risk to the player, not the social aspects. I'll get into that uh, very quickly, but it's why it's something in addition to X. It might be two X. I doubt that it's two X. I, mean, you know, I don't think it's going to double the risk of a player uh, contracting SARS-CoV-2, but it's going to be more than the risk of, of simply playing football in fanless stadiums. Now, I will say, I don't think, and I've said this vocally, fanless stadiums does not mean fanless football. You know, there are a lot of, most of the people who see a football game do not see it in the stands. And I'm surprised the NFL hasn't gone to NFL films and said, as you may know, there's, there's 32 cameras in the NFL stadiums at this time. Why not 38? Why not 58? Because of the fans. There's nowhere to put those, you know, you could create almost a 3D experience by putting more and higher resolution cameras in and, you know, it may come to that with a TV deal that gets done, but it has not been done yet. There's no question it's an increased risk. How much risk? We don't know. Could you throw COVID parties where fans who wanted to attend the stadium at reduced numbers were required to have a point of, at least a point of care test prior to entering the stadium? You could do that. There's a cost to that. Is that the right social use of testing? I don't know, but there might be some creative solutions to be able to do that. To Zach's point, at least I think part of his point, is it really fair to the people who are selling popcorn and selling beer and to be exposed as an occupational risk? I mean, that's, uh, that's an ethical question. There's no question about it. But to go back to the issue of all behavior has meaning and all language has meaning, and to step outside the NFL briefly, when you see a, a, a highly rated academic school that has been successful in the past, almost instantaneously eliminate some 17 uh, non-revenue sports. That's not a response. I mean, that tells you they were thinking about getting rid of those sports before this happened. SARS-CoV-2 is an excuse for a behavior which, personally, I find reprehensible. And of course, I won't name what school, but it, it rhymes with Stanford. Thank you for pointing out, Tom, that it does have an effect on the players, too. That's right. And I did not take that into account financially. But uh, yeah, the, the same thing still holds. I mean, is any extra money in their pockets worth the risk to the broader community? And I would argue 
No, from my perspective. But then again, that's that's easy for me to say. But I, I just, I, I don't see it. I don't see us being in a place where, where we can do that responsibly. I mean, imagine if one super spreader event is traced back to an NFL game. I mean, my goodness, how, how is everybody involved going to feel? I, I also love the point about innovation. One of the things that I've thought is, what's, what's the coolest thing in football? To me, honestly, one of the coolest things is say the Minneapolis miracle. I love watching the reaction videos. I can't get enough. I can't get enough. Imagine Price to have a a camera in their living room focused on them for some period of the game. Right now, you'd have to have it on some kind of delay to make sure that nobody's doing anything bad or anything like that. But like, think about innovation, ways that you can create new revenue streams safely. I would love to watch a near real-time reaction video for a crazy touchdown from a team. I would love that. So look for things like that. Well, as a Saints fan, I have had more than enough of the Minneapolis Miracle, so thank you for bringing that up <laughs> in a couple of years. You're um, welcome. <laughs> two last very quick points that, I again, I within the context of sports, but generalizing it to how people are living their lives and the, and the fears they have. And the, and the first one is the the JAMA article that suggested that college students be tested every two days, which for most schools is unmanageable and cost prohibitive. But some college athletes claim that they were tested, and this is to Zach's point earlier, when they first came back to campus and did not get tested again over the course of two months. And then when they asked for a test, they were told they could only get one if they're symptomatic. And then thinking about it, not just with college athletes, but with college students and the frequency of testing. And again, this, I, I know this is a resource issue, but what is the best practice putting aside resources for frequency of testing? Because on the one hand, I understand the idea that there are obvious benefits from frequent testing, as we've talked about. But on the other hand, particularly given the delay in getting the results back that we're seeing right now. It, the, the prior advice, at least, had been to a lot of university presidents that frequent testing was a bad idea because it would give students a false sense of security, like we've discussed, and then perhaps lead them to ignore or downplay all the physical distancing. So what's the right balance there? Well, the more, more frequent testing is better. There's no question about that. That argument, I think, uh, against testing is a bad faith application of the behavioral change argument. Um, you want to test as frequently as you can, and you want to have turnaround as fast as you can. Now, how do you achieve that? You may not be able to achieve that with the tests that we're using right now, PCR tests. So there are some very respected epidemiologists who I happen to agree with. Uh, Michael Mina at Harvard is kind of the leader of this charge. Dr. Mina is arguing for uh, faster regulatory approval of these paper strip tests that use saliva. They can return results in a few minutes, kind of like a home pregnancy test, and they cost about one or two dollars. Imagine if everyone could take one of those every day. Okay, maybe it's a little less sensitive than uh, the PCR, but we also don't necessarily need to detect if you have one little SARS-CoV-2 viron in you, right? We need to detect if you're infectious, and that means you have a lot, okay? So these paper strip tests may be okay at identifying whether you're infectious, maybe not whether you're uh, SARS-CoV-2 positive, but if you're infectious, those we could deploy very cheaply, very frequently, with very rapid turnaround, and could do a lot towards making things like colleges or K through 12 schools or workplaces safer. So I think we got to start thinking outside the box here a little bit. I think we've gotten a little sclerotic in our thinking about testing. 
Yeah, I agree that the the idea of uh, those, uh, I mean, generally, uh, those who say frequent testing is the enemy of progress in this or specious reasoning and, and have some other agenda, in my opinion, not to cast aspersions, but I, I totally agree with Zach, whether it's a paper strip test, a breath test, um, smell tests. A couple of folks at Harvard have, have a, you know, essentially a scratch and sniff that looks at whether their smell has changed. So I think there'll be some creative ways. And yeah, how do you deal with the the non-relaxing of the other issues as you maintain it? You know, as people come in, they don't have a mask on, they don't get tested. They are sent back home. You don't come into the classroom. You don't come into the facility. You don't come into the locker room. They don't maintain uh, distancing. I, I think the test has to be fast enough that the line does not become a, a way of spreading the virus because they're not maintaining physical distancing. But listen, whatever we start this season with, we're not going to end the season with. We're going to end it with some other form of testing, some other form of, of ability to, uh, to handle these things. There's a whole literature and a separate podcast about what might work from a preventative slash prophylactic standpoint. And, you know, that literature is still emerging. So, you know, more to come. And I, I'm quite certain, uh, Gabe, that you will not uh, want for subjects for podcasts in the future. And I'm just delighted you included us on this one. Well, Likewise. Thank it's you. It's been my absolute pleasure, but I have to ask one final question for both of you guys that were school starting up. I'm a law professor. You guys teach. You're taught in classes. I don't know if you're teaching this semester, but if you are planning on teaching this semester, how comfortable do you feel being in a classroom with 20, 40, 50 college students, law students, PhD students, whatever it might be. And what are you doing to take um, precautions if you're doing it? Tom, go ahead, Zach. Oh, yeah. To me, I'm not concerned about it. So I'm comfortable. And the reason I'm comfortable is simply uh, it's another opportunity to say, follow the guidelines, follow the guidelines, follow the guidelines. If you're not going to follow the guidelines, don't come to this class. And if if I see you not following them, I'm going to call you out on that, not to shame you, but for the community responsibility that you have as a member of this classroom, as a member of this university. So I'm a little on the soapbox there, but uh, but I feel strongly about the importance of personal interaction. Uh, I'm slightly on the other side of this for, for my personal choices. Um, when the situation started to worsen here in Georgia, I was debating. It took me a while, but I decided to move my classes this semester online, and I had the full support of my university to do that. And I think that that's the right call, both for my safety, but more to the point for my students' safety. As an epidemiologist, I just felt that it would it would send the wrong message right now. I think that's a very hyper-local decision too, right? Like It's really hard to do that in Georgia, but if you're in Montana right now or Wyoming, maybe it's okay. Right. So I'm not saying that my decision is the only right decision, but I'm saying that with the amount of virus that we have around us here, I did not feel like uh, like going into the classroom was a wise idea. But I also hear what Tom's saying. Right. I I know I'm supposed to end by asking, what do you think the odds are that we finish the NFL season or when are we going to all be back to normal? But instead, I'm going to ask a more practical final question. Do I still need to be wiping down my groceries and Amazon packages before they bring them in the house? Just wash your hands. Just wash your dang hands, Gabe. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, honest, Gabe, it, it depends upon how's your OCD doing today. Not great. There we go. <laughs> 
It's look, we're we're learning. I'll, I'll I'm sorry. I'll get up on the soapbox one last time, but it'll be brief. A lot of people have this idea of the scientists of scientists as these bees, like singular men in white coats in the basement screaming Eureka, like we found a truth to the universe, or that we know everything to start with. We don't. The way that I describe science and my life as a scientist is I try and be a little less wrong every day. That's the best I can do. We're all learning, especially with a new emerging infection like this. We were super cautious about things like groceries at first because we didn't know how big a role surface transmission played. Now we have reason to think that it's less of a big deal. And so we're backing off of recommendations like that and re-upping, strengthening recommendations around things like masks. And I know that can be really frustrating for the public and feel like whiplash and like, well, you just said one thing and now you're saying another. You don't really know anything, do you? And all I would ask is a little understanding to empathize that we're trying our best. We're learning right along with you. And we're always trying to communicate the latest that we know, which sometimes changes. And I hope you wouldn't want us to just stick to our guns so that we seem stronger and smarter, right? That, that wouldn't do anybody any good. So that's just a little peek behind the curtain at, at how science works. It's in fits and starts. Sometimes we go forward, sometimes backwards. We're just trying to get a little less wrong every day on average. Yeah, that's a great point. And I actually try to tell my wife that I try to get a little less wrong every day. Usually not effective when I say it to her. How's that work out for you? (laughs) Not that well. But thank you both. This was awesome. And I appreciate you taking all the time and and the insight. And I I hope we don't have to talk about this again in several months, but I have a funny feeling we may. But I, I look forward to your continued insights. And Tom, good luck with the season and everything else you're doing. And Zach, good luck with your semester. And be well to both of you. Good. Thanks, Jed. Thanks for listening. And see you next time between the lines. We're grown ass men.